Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman, and we are back a week early with another bonus episode that was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. And if you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own to get us to talk about your favorite weird fiction story or your favorite Star Trek episode or anything else that you can think up, and especially anything weird and crazy that you can think up, you can check out our website for more information about that. Though, of course, the best way to do that is to become a Patreon supporter. And I'm very excited about what we are doing today, but Brandon, I'm going to let you explain what we're up to because I'm not sure that I could actually contain the level of excitement to uh, explain it coherently. <laughs> well, this episode we're talking about weird fiction's influence on RPG, uh, really specifically tabletop role-playing games. There's a whole host of games that have used weird fiction characters, storylines, settings as a backdrop, and we're going to be exploring some of those today with a guest and member of the Clay Temple Media family. Right. And of course, we have to bring in here for this episode, my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast. We're going to have Brent Helt with us today. Back in the day, Brent and I were not only reading comic books and other books together, we also were playing a lot of role-playing games together. And it's actually through role-playing games that I got into H.P. Lovecraft. That's how I discovered who H.P. Lovecraft was. And this was all a real big part of our adolescence. So uh, Brent, we're glad to have you back on Elder Sign for this. And I'm excited to be here. It's uh, great to have an excuse to talk about weird fiction and role-playing games. Role-playing games as kind of a collective means of storytelling are a great way sometimes to explore uh, settings, themes, uh, specific character ideas. Um, so I'm looking forward to having a brief discussion about some of those things today. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. As I said, in this episode, we're going to talk about a bunch of weird fiction RPG settings. But I think first, it's important to look at the influence that weird fiction has specifically on what is probably the most famous tabletop RPG, Dungeons and Dragons. So Glenn, I'm going to hand this one to you since I think you are most familiar with the crossover here and the influence. Right. D&D or Dungeons and Dragons is not maybe technically the oldest tabletop role-playing game, but it's the one that really established this as an industry. It's it's probably, you know, the most important moment. Uh, and D&D dates back to 1974. It's something that Gary Gygax and others were working on for, for several years in the, the early 70s. And it was a massive hit when it came out. And it really did revolutionize both gaming and, I think, speculative fiction storytelling in general which is something that we'll we'll get to in our final segment of the the show today. And D&D is I think everybody knows is a fantasy game, right? The idea is that you're going to be a bunch of characters in a fantasy world with swords or bows or spells and you're going to fight some bad guys and do some dungeon crawling. And as a fantasy game, it draws a lot on Tolkien. The basic concept of D&D has elves, has halflings as well. These were originally called hobbits until the Tolkien estate threatened to sue D&D for calling them hobbits. So now they're halflings. There's rangers as a character class, right? Basically, you get to play Aragorn. And I was a massive Tolkien fan from about the fourth grade on. And so this was a big draw for me, a big draw uh, to D&D for me. But it was also, I will say, what I actually thought fantasy literature was. It's all I thought fantasy literature was, that it was all Tolkien and then people writing in the vein of Tolkien. But one of the things that I've really gotten out of doing Elder Sign and, and also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast is a real exposure 
to I guess the, the long and well really quite rich tradition of fantasy that existed either before Tolkien or, or maybe even better parallel to Tolkien and a lot of that actually went into D&D and I just didn't notice that when I was younger because I hadn't been exposed to that source material. And in fact, there was in the, the 1979 Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide a list of influences, a list of literary influences on D&D, a kind of bibliography or a suggested reading list that is uh, Appendix N in that book. And I think Appendix N is even kind of a shorthand for people to, to use to talk about those influences now. And a lot of it is actually weird fiction, or at least has strong weird fiction elements. Uh, Lovecraft and Howard are on that list, and, and really they're near the top of that list. And with Howard, of course, right, that's mostly Conan, but Conan stories were published in Weird Tales because Conan is not wonder fiction, right? It's not elves, sir, right? It's not Tolkien's type of fantasy writing. It's weird fiction. Everything in Conan stories is always horrific and abhorrent and strange, which is one of the real differences between how Howard writes and and, and Tolkien writes or how they conceive of their, their world building. But also on this list is Jack Vance, who was uh, an extremely prolific writer. And here, though, I think the influence is mostly, or at least most explicitly, his stories that are in his Dying Earth setting. And I say most explicitly because even the core magic system of D&D, which is that wizards have to learn their spells uh, every day, right? They forget them routinely and have to learn them again. This magic system is just taken wholesale from these Jack Vance stories. It's the magic system of Jack Vance's Dying Earth stories, and they're just appropriated entirely into D&D. And Vance's Dying Earth stories, they're, they're a science fantasy story. So I guess what, we, what I mean by that is that they take place very far in the future when the the Earth is is dying. That's what it says on the box, right? And there's a blend of advanced technology and also magic. But the world that Vance constructs for this is a weird world. It's not a wondrous world. And really, these are actually kind of a riff on Conan stories. They also owe a huge debt to Clark Ashton Smith. And we actually just this week had some chatter on the Clay Temple forums about Jack Vance because he was such a massive influence on Gene Wolfe and especially on the Book of the New Sun. So I think we'll actually be getting to do some Jack Vance here on this show sometime soon, or at least it'll get on the ballot. And we'll see if that's something people want us to, to do. And those maybe are the the most important writers here in Appendix N, but there are a lot more writers on this list. This includes Abraham Merritt, El Sprague de Camp, uh, Fritz Lieber as well. And all of these guys wrote, I think, what we would now call sword and sorcery. But their stories are almost always about a lone hero or a small group of heroes fighting some evil sorcerer, right? A necromancer, maybe. Or they're taking on some unspeakable ancient evil from another world. And they're really the same types of baddies that we get in Lovecraft, right? The, the the story beats are all largely the same. And really the things that makes these stories by these writers seem like fantasy rather than straight up horror is simply the setting, right? It's really just a matter of the furniture of the story. And even though my draw to D&D was the Tolkien influence, more and more I have realized that that's kind of just a skin over what is really a variation on these weird fiction sword and sorcery stories. And I think all of that is actually extremely apparent in the gameplay, like in the actual mechanics of how this is a game. And, and that's something I think that we're going to let Brent talk about. 
Yeah, Glenn, and as you mentioned, uh, Tolkien is what brings us a lot to D&D in which, you know, we think about hobbits or halflings, as the setting calls it. Uh, we think about elves, we think about dwarves, we think about dragons and dungeons and piles of gold. Um, but there from the start has always been these other things that are very much inspired by um, Lovecraft and science fiction as well, where there are spaceships that are crashing and there are, um, you know, squid-headed monsters and, and all kinds of other wild stuff. So I wanted to note a couple just kind of monsters that are very much part of D&D and have been from the beginning in various iterations, um, but are not your traditional kind of uh, sword and sandals or, you know, sword and elven forest kind of uh, creatures. There's the Mind Flayers, which m many people know about, um, and there's a reference to Mind Flayers in uh, Stranger Things. Uh, they call one of the creatures they encounter a Mind Flayer. It's different than described in D&D, but still that's very much on the minds of those protagonists as they encounter something weird and otherworldly. Uh, but the mind flayers or illithids are, have these, um, tentacles and squids, um, heads, um, but they're humanoid looking, but they devour, uh, the brains of sentient creatures, uh, and they enslave them using psionic powers. Uh, they are often depicted as traveling through the astral sea. So you can imagine them in the D and D equivalent of giant spaceships, um, going around and enslaving other races, um, and burrowing into their minds, um, psionically as well as with their tentacles themselves. One of the uh, one of those ideas taken a little bit more on steroids is the idea of the Abolith. The Abolith, which was introduced in the first edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, um, was a giant waterborne kind of squid monster with tentacles as well, and it can read the minds of creatures within a distance from it and even enslave them. Um, it has a perfect memory of not only its own memories but also the memories of every Abolith that going back the generations before it. So much so that the Abolists apparently in D&D canon, in the normal monster manual in 5th edition, remember what it was like to exist before the gods even showed up, and they hate the gods and want to return to the fact of when they were masters of all that they surveyed. Um, but this idea of kind of remembering back through time even reminds me a lot of um, some of the things that play out in Dune, of course. Um, but also this means that if the players encounter an Abolith, they have to worry about the fact that one of their party might be enslaved, whether they know it or not, uh, that the Abolith might be uh, enslaving um, psionically creatures that are friends with theirs of theirs normally um, and other terrible things. But it also means any offspring of the Abolith would have a perfect memory of fighting the characters and all of their um, powers to bring against them, which reminds me of another D and D monster that's uh, presented in, in all of the editions, which is the Rakshasa, which are kind of like cat men, but their hands are backwards just to make them a little bit off. Um, and if you kill a rock, Rakshasa, it doesn't actually die. It just has a very long suffering uh, time where it is reborn somewhere in the nine hells. It's a fiend and it has a memory of everything that happened. And it's now sole goal is to, make lives terrible for the creatures that defeated it um, and caused it so much pain, including going after their loved ones and other things. Um, this is on top of all of the gibbering mouthers and which are collections of eyes and teas and other things that are just kind of um, wonderful kind of horror Lovecraftian indescribable yet uh, described with some amount of detail uh, in the basic setting. Um, 
In addition, the mechanics themselves, uh, the Dungeons Master's Guide for 5th edition even uh, introduces the idea that you could have a sanity attribute and you could do sanity-based saving throws. We'll talk a little bit later on a, a gaming system, an RPG, that kind of very much brought in the idea of sanity in the player character and that being a measurable thing that you have to test. But that um, harkens back to a lot of the Lovecraftian and other horror roots of how you deal with the things that you encounter and the fact that you shouldn't necessarily face all of these things and remain sane. Um, so that's in the optional rules. Um, but uh, because of the ascendancy of um, particularly in recent in the last 10, 15 years, uh, Lovecraft, which is something that the three of us have loved for quite a while. Um, you, even people who don't know who Lovecraft is know what Cthulhu looks like. Um, and so leaning into that a lot in the player's handbook, there's a class called the Warlock and the Warlock gets their magical powers from um, not study as the wizard does and not from praying to their gods the way the cleric does or from natural powers the way the druid does. But instead they, they get it from uh, a, a pact that they have entered with some very powerful being. And it could be that it's uh, an arch fey, um, a very powerful fey creature. It could be that it's a fiend, like uh, I made a contract with the devil. Um, but they introduce in the core book the idea that it could be a great old one. Um, and I just want to read this description of if your patron is a great old one. Your patron is a mysterious entity whose nature is utterly foreign to the fabric of reality. It might come from the far realm, the space beyond reality, or it could be one of the elder gods known only in legends. Its motives are incomprehensible to mortals, and its knowledge so immense and ancient that even the greatest libraries pale in comparison to the vast secrets it holds. The great old one might be unaware of your existence or entirely indifferent to you, but the secrets you have learned allow you to draw your magic from it. So that's departing from the idea of, uh, you've got a contract with the devil. Here is where for whatever means and for whatever reasons your character is able to draw part of power intentionally or not from, um, something which is dwells even outside of the understanding that that character could ever have and allows characters to kind of lean into that. So there's, um, Glenn, as you mentioned in back in appendix N, there was a lot of kind of weird fiction roots from all places that kind of wove themselves into D and D, but the basic rules, even now at this point in the current fifth edition of the game, uh, very much allow a lot of options for, um, players and game masters to pursue those things um, if they want. This is in addition to, of course, third-party content where you could play a quote-unquote Dungeons & Dragons game, but yeah, have the Cthulhu mythos. For instance, Sandy Peterson, uh, who we'll be talking about a little bit later, um, also has a setting source book for the Cthulhu mythos that specifically adds additional rules and character options um, that Dungeon Masters and players can consider using for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. We just saw on Elder Sign this type of relationship between wizards and old ones in the Clark Ashton Smith story, The Doors to Saturn, where these priests of Hyperborea are in conflict with one another because they draw the source of their power from these different, basically, old ones. And it sounds like that idea has just been imported into Dungeons and & Dragons and kind of getting players to think about uh, where magic comes from. It's not a resource in the world. It's something that comes from outside of it. That's really cool to see. 
Yeah, it's really great that um, in the basic rules now for 5th edition, there's all of those options where you can incorporate plot lines like those, Brandon, um, into the setting alongside someone who wants to be the more traditional, uh, as some of us view it, like wizardly, scholarly, I'm going to be an old man with a beard who spent all of his years studying things versus someone who um, is specifically serving um outer gods or inner gods or any kind. So there's a lot of options there built into the system, which I think is great. So I just went over some of the rules and just a little bits of flavor in the basic fifth edition setting, but there also are, it's kind of a generic kind of setting agnostic um, rules. There also are specific settings that kind of lean into specific themes um, that you all have talked about um, in talking about weird fiction. Um, so one of those is uh, the Ravenloft setting, uh, which dates back to first edition AD&D. There was an adventure, but then it became a setting unto itself in second edition. So Glenn, you have a, a very long history with Ravenloft. So why don't you talk about it? I like how you uh, you checked the way that you you, uh, you phrased that there, Brent, because I think I think you know the horrifying truth of what ninth grade was like for me and my uh, obsession with all things Ravenloft and really, I did love Ravenloft. Ravenloft is dear and uh, near to my my heart. And as you say, it is a, a originally a campaign module for uh, early D&D. Uh, and this was a module written by Tracy and Laura Hickman, who I knew at least at that point as being sort of more famous for also having invented Dragonlance. And this is 1983. So it's really for the, for the AD&D system. And it's really gothic horror adventure for D&D, right? D&D characters in this campaign are going to get to fight Dracula. I mean, he's not actually Dracula. He's Count Strahd, you know, but he's basically Dracula. And you're going to go to an equivalent of Transylvania and you're going to raid his castle. And it is something of uh, of a dungeon crawl in a gothic horror setting, fighting a, an actual vampire. But where I really fell in love with Ravenloft is later in the, the 90s when it was turned into a full-blown setting. And this was a move that D&D uh, had started doing already of of developing f- whole fantasy worlds that you could use the D&D rule set for. So Dragonlance is one of them. Forgotten Realms is another, probably the, the biggest of them, really. And Ravenloft came out in 1990. It was a big box set called Ravenloft Realm of Terror. And this really was a huge obsession for me in eighth grade, ninth grade, I think most especially. But that's also when I was getting into Poe and Lovecraft. And I was really switching from a lot of fantasy reading to a lot of horror reading at that time. And the the guidebook for Ravenloft even quotes a ton of Poe. There's a really long excerpt from The Fall of the House of Usher, like right in the introduction to this book. That's always been one of my favorite stories. And so that really hooked me just kind of immediately. But then they also use Lovecraft's essay, Supernatural Horror, in literature to talk about how the gameplay might actually be different in a gothic horror setting than in a fantasy setting. And Ravenloft also has a suggested reading list similar to Appendix N. It's Poe and Lovecraft, but also Algernon Blackwood and Sheridan Le Fanu. These are, you know, all writers that we've done on this show. And so Ravenloft as a setting is basically an entire RPG fantasy world that is based on various genres of of supernatural horror. There's no you know, slasher type horror here. It's all supernatural horror. And all of it's really within a 19th century gothic 
landscape, but you're going to get the full range of of supernatural horror and other sorts of like weird fiction elements, mad sciencey stuff going on as well. And as I said, the gameplay in Ravenloft is also meant to be a little bit different. It's meant to have a different flavor. And in fact, the guide explicitly says that Ravenloft is not for dungeon crawls, that there's supposed to be a story that's focused around a well-developed villain and especially around unraveling the mystery of what is even happening in the adventure and why it's happening, right? That's supposed to be the heart of the stories that you're going to tell in Ravenloft. And the guide goes on, it suggests a number of possible adventures that a DM could write or set, you know, in in Ravenloft here. And I think probably my two favorites are The Beast on the Moors, and then there's also one that is uh, prompting you to do the evil priest who's trying to summon up an old one, and you as the party of heroes have to band together and stop them or figure out what the beast on the moors is. And the beast on the moors suggestion is a lot of fun because they actually go through and suggest about a dozen possible solutions to what type of D&D monster you might want to use. And some of them are actually just straight from the D&D manual, the D&D monster manual, like Brent was talking about, some of the monsters Brent was talking about, but others are drawn more from the Nineteenth century Gothic tradition, and so even even the setup is really meant to be uh, a nod to uh, Sherlock Holmes, the, the the Hound of the Baskervilles, for example. For those of you who are interested in uh, exploring kind of a Ravenloft setting using Fifth Edition, the current edition of Dungeons and Dragons, um, the Curse of Strahd adventure module uh, is designed around um, kind of the first setting used for Ravenloft that other things were then later built from. So um, that's a fun bit of horror adventuring that folks might want to do. Yeah, is is Strahd still kind of the big bad, the big boss of Ravenloft in the Fifth Edition setting? Yes, um, they have not in the fifth edition actually mentioned the other kingdoms the way they had built it out in prior settings. So fifth edition, it is just all about Strahd again. And so you find yourself awaking, um, surrounded by mists and Strahd is the big bad that eventually you face after kind of exploring all of the things that are in his domain. Yeah, that's fantastic. I would love to actually run that to kind of go back to that, the, just the kind of the simplicity of of uh, doing the dungeon raid on Strahd's castle, because that was just such a tremendous joy. But I think now we should probably jump into full on our segment here, going through a number of these RPG settings. And really, first up, we're going to talk about Call of Cthulhu, which is actually probably the the reason that any of us are here talking about weird fiction or role-playing games at all. Uh, Lovecraft, I think, is really resurrected or, or kept from being extinguished in the pop culture memory by the role-playing game, Call of Cthulhu. And, and Brent, I think you're really kind of the, the expert here on the, the game Call of Cthulhu. So we'll let you uh, present this one to us. And Call of Cthulhu is a Great game. Uh, I've played it a little bit, but I have many of the books and I spent a lot of time thinking about the game. Um, but it's um, originally it was 1981 when uh, Chaosium um, put it out. Sandy Peterson uh, was the lead behind it, and he's been the lead pretty much in all the editions up to the current. Currently, it's on the seventh edition that came out a couple years ago. Um, Call of Cthulhu by default sets things around the 1920s, where it's kind of the Roaring Twenties is the backdrop, but you're very much finding yourself in the role of a protagonist in a Lovecraft story. Somewhat more the active protagonist than the passive ones, so um, you're not necessarily uh, Randolph 
Carter when he is merely taking dictation as someone wanders into a cave. Um, as I know the two of you have talked about that story before, um, you're more the group of people who get together to try to figure out what's happening. So more the person who finds himself in Innsmouth or the person trying to figure out what's going on with a well in Dunwich. And it takes a lot of kind of traditional role-playing game stuff, but it does throw in um, something that I don't recall seeing anywhere else and and has never really been duplicated as well. Although, as I mentioned, uh, fifth edition of D&D does offer some optional rules for it now, but, and that is, um, that is the, the idea of sanity or insanity. Um, and as your characters learn more about how awful and strange reality is and things that are outside of reality intersecting with it, um, they have to make sanity checks and they, even when they succeed may nonetheless lose sanity. And the idea that you could be facing monsters who, um, them murdering you may not be actually the terrible end that comes to you so much as you going crazy and losing control of your character in the process then because of the things that they learn, which the purpose of the game often is to piece together clues and learn things about whatever terrible, you know, cult is trying to bring about the end of the world or what have you. Um, it's kind of a fun bit of twisting the mechanics on their head where it's not a matter of I'm trying to amass treasure. It's a matter of I'm just trying to survive and I'm just trying to stop those people from causing everything to end. But in the process, I will lose my mind. Well, and one of the big differences between Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons and Dragons, right, is that in D&D, one of the joys of it is that you make a character who's a really no-powered nothing starting at level one, and you can play that character for a really, really long time, years, decades, campaign after campaign after campaign, and grow in experience and you know, level up, right? And the adventures then, the campaigns then will level up with you. But Call of Cthulhu is not designed that way. You're not supposed to be a character who professionally fights old ones and does this for, you know, 30 years or something like that. These characters are are going to die, right? Or go insane, right? This is a lot more perilous uh, to the characters who are doing these adventures. Yeah, that's correct, Glenn. So um, the characters just, they won't necessarily last long. And even in fact, success for that character may mean that they manage to die on their own terms versus um, perishing because they glance the wrong way down a corridor um, and see something that they really should not have seen. And Call of Cthulhu as well is super important to really just even the popularity of Lovecraft and weird fiction today, right? You said earlier, Brent, that not everyone has read H.P. Lovecraft, but everybody knows what Cthulhu looks like. And the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is a massive part of that. Uh, I think this is really the only reason I know about Lovecraft that I know about Cthulhu came through role-playing games. I think most people who got into weird fiction in the 80s and the 90s, like we did, did so via role-playing games. And then there was a real renaissance of weird fiction in uh, in in storytelling and print storytelling, narrative storytelling, uh, and as well as a revival then of some of the the greats, including Lovecraft and and Howard and and others that have now pervaded our pop culture again. But it's really because Sandy Peterson made this fantastic game that this happened, and he was really only able to make this game because Lovecraft's uh, heirs, the heirs to the Lovecraft estate, had allowed the copyrights to all of his stories to the Cthulhu mythos to uh, to lapse, and so anyone could could take these. And 
Sandy Peterson saw this intellectual property there waiting to be turned into anything and made this really successful game out of it. And if that hadn't happened, you know, the whole landscape of our pop culture would be totally different, right? We would have no Stranger Things if it were not for this role-playing game. But this is not the only role-playing game to deal directly with Lovecraft and his mythos because it does remain out of copyright. Anyone can use these things now. Uh, And so we're going to talk as well about the other game that takes this up, the other big one, I should say, called Trail of Cthulhu. So two huge fans of Call of Cthulhu are Robin D. Laws and Kenneth Height, who some listeners of our podcast may also know from the podcast Ken and Robin talk about stuff, which Glenn and I occasionally uh, reference, particularly when we're when we're talking about the differences between iconic heroes and dramatic heroes. Uh, that that is a concept that Ken and Robin talk about a lot. And Robin D. Laws created the Gumshoe system for role playing games. And Kenneth Height used Robin's gumshoe system to, well, I don't know if they would call it improve upon Call of Cthulhu, but definitely make some adjustments to the core gameplay um, to make the game more accessible and to maybe iron out some of the wrinkles that they saw were happening in the gameplay of Call of Cthulhu. One of those is that it was possible for game players of Call of Cthulhu, at least as they saw it, to miss clues. And the clues were the things that would help the players solve the mystery of the game that they were running, which could maybe help them stay alive or stay sane. So one of the reasons why Ken and Robin then adapted the game into the gumshoe system was to ensure that the characters could not miss the clues that would help them solve the game, the whatever scenario they were running. And that's because Gumshoe and that's because the Gumshoe system is focused on the characters being investigators rather than just characters in a weird or fantasy setting. Another thing they tried to do by adapting the game into the Gumshoe system was really to fix it in a pulp or noir setting. So all of the characters are sort of archetypal characters you find in noir fiction and pulp fiction, but that you also find in weird fiction. So you have the alienist, an antiquarian, the archaeologist, an author, a doctor, a hobo. And some of these characters exist in this world because of the time period when pulp and noir was really big uh, in the 1920s and the 1920s and 1930s is around the time of the Great Depression and shifting class systems in the U.S. and societal norms. So these characters are often down on their luck. You know, the hobo is an out-of-work drifter like you'd find in, you know, the postman always rings twice or something like that. Uh, And it's really designed, like I said, to to fixate the setting in a very particular period of time um, and to allow the players to play as uh, Ken puts it, as Kenneth Height puts it, in either more of a pulp mode, which is kind of running in and punching people and kicking open doors, or in the weird fiction mode, which is making discoveries, investigating stuff, and going mad because of the things you discover. So this this whole 
game, Call of Cthulhu really gets an overhaul in the gumshoe system. And uh, it's, it's a really cool innovation on the original ideas of Call of Cthulhu. Right, because Call of Cthulhu as a game by Sandy Peterson is really D&D for uh, the 1920s in a, a weird fiction in a Lovecraftian horror setting. But you are going gra- to get, gather, as Brent said, just a real you know band of adventurers, a party, right, in D&D terms, and go fight some some bad guys. And what Trail of Cthulhu does is make a game that feels a little bit more like some of the less adventury stories that Lovecraft has written, something maybe a little bit more like the statement of Randolph Carter, for example, where it's really unraveling the the mystery. And in fact, I guess really, I guess maybe what we might say is that where Call of Cthulhu feels like a D&D type game in the 1920s in a weird fiction setting, Trail of Cthulhu actually feels a little bit more like, or at least can feel a little bit more like a Cthulhu themed escape room. Right, exactly. And it's designed to be that way. They They really want the players to inhabit the characters of detectives of people who stumble across a mystery and then it goes all the way up to the mayor of the city but instead of the mayor here it's an old one or something like that uh which is kind of your classic noir plot and and that's what they're after in this game and i think kind of the success that trove cthulhu using the gumshoe system has at as brandon noted making it a little easier to make sure that players don't completely miss clues means that you don't have um, a keeper, which is what Call of Cthulhu calls its game master, Dungeon Master, putting in lots of effort for a story that then at a certain point, the players just can't get any further because they, they miss something. So with the gumshoe system and Trail of Cthulhu, the idea is, no, we want to see people make it or the players, if not the characters, make it to the third act so that someone didn't waste their time creating this whole story that just kind of feels empty if if anyone can't get out of the first part of the plot. Uh, the only other thing I mentioned on Call of Cthulhu is there are some supplements which uh, introduce slightly different settings other than uh, 1920s. So um, one... Uh, for instance, puts in an ancient Rome, um, Cthulhu Invictus. Um, and there's a couple other ones that kind of change up a couple settings, but, uh, the default still remains kind of the early 20th century kind of pulpy setting. So. Yes, and Cthulhu Invictus is the the game that I have always wanted to play, and I actually got pretty deep. I'd say maybe maybe not quite knee deep, but like ankle deep into uh, creating a campaign for that uh, at Princeton. The, it was a campaign that that never materialized because I went to go live in another country instead and do some research and stuff. But uh, I still dream of being able to play that game someday. So moving ahead, somewhat, Glenn. While there are other settings or other time periods available for the setting that you're going to talk about next. It's by default kind of set in a modern, contemporary, late 20th century or early 21st century setting. So why don't you talk about the world of darkness? Yes, right. So, so far we've, we've talked about a gothic horror fantasy setting, gothic horror, maybe dark fantasy setting in Ravenloft. And then we've looked at the way two different game creators or teams of game creators have, have really tried to set games in the world of Lovecraft's own stories. But world of darkness is really a sprawling urban fantasy setting, though I will say that the the creators of the World of Darkness have actually dubbed it gothic punk, which I think was meant to contrast with cyberpunk, which was really all the vogue, and the other thing that I was absolutely in love with uh, circa 1991, when the very first game in the World of Darkness setting came out, which is the the game Vampire the Masquerade. 
And this looms large in my memory. And I think that this was a real, had a, and I do think this game had a real massive impact on gaming in general or tabletop role playing gaming in general. And the idea with Vampire the Masquerade is that there are vampires among us. And so this is set in the real world of the 1990s, but it has a, a secret history of the, the supernatural there at the, the core of it, where we can discover that some of the most important institutions and most important events in our society and our society's past have uh, been influenced by the supernatural in some way, and, and in this case, usually by vampires. But the real twist of this game actually is that you're not fighting the supernatural horror creatures, which is what we've done in the three games we've talked about so far. In this game, you are the supernatural horror creatures, right? In this game, you play a vampire. And really what you're doing is navigating the the social and institutional world of the supernatural that exists in the shadows of our own real world. And Vampire, of course, this was a massive part of our high school years, Brent. Uh, you even ran a Vampire LARP that, that sadly only lasted, I guess, for about a month. But it was pretty awesome. And it is one of these things that looms large in my memory of our high school years. And, and in fact, when I realized it didn't actually take up that much of uh, take up that much calendar time, I'm, I'm a little mystified by that because it stands out in my, my memory so much. But Vampire the Masquerade quickly expanded into, I mean, a really a sprawling game universe. And, and that's really really when the name World of Darkness you know, shows up to be applied to this. And this includes games such as Werewolf, The Apocalypse, Mage, The Ascension. That was actually my favorite of them. There's Wraith, The Oblivion, uh, Changeling, The Dreaming. Uh, you see the naming pattern here, right? And uh, Changeling was all about uh, fairies, right? Fairies in the, the medieval sense. So that kind of brought in some Lord Dunsany stuff in, into this that was very, very cool. Uh, there's also a mummy game. There's a demon game as well. And one of the things that I found most interesting about the world of darkness is that in the end, White Wolf, and, and, and that was the, the publisher of these, these 90s games, also created a game called Hunter in which you actually could be a human hunting the vampires, uh, hunting mummies and werewolves and so on. But this was even given a big supernatural element of its own because these hunters are magically imbued by some unknown force for goodness, I guess I would say. And the whole world of darkness eventually takes on a kind of cosmic battle idea that culminates in a gaming event that then ended the whole thing. And it really feels like uh, something akin to, to DC or Marvel doing a big crossover event in order to reboot the universe and start over. And in fact, the world of darkness did actually start over in, I guess, was it 2004 or so? But I have to confess that I've actually never done more than flip through those books in the, the store. But Brent, I suspect you've actually looked a little bit more closely at this new incarnation if you haven't actually played it i so i missed the segment where they were ending because actually had a big campaign where everything was actually brought to a close story-wise um in the early part of this um, century um but i've seen some of the things that have come since after they've kind of rebooted things and tried uh a different way to approach things. And some of it's a little darker tinged, even a uh, changeling, which uh, had the capacity to be pretty dark and talking about the fake courts in their own way in the nineties um, and the uh, early two thousands was always kind of the lighter, like literally the cover of the book had all of the colors on it, as opposed to just black and another color, <laughs> um, which uh, most of the other ones did. Um, but in the new version of changeling um, that came out about a year ago, um, now you play someone who was taken um, as a small child or maybe as an, a slightly older child, and you've been replaced by a changeling. And so you manage to show back up and someone else is living your life and 
has taken your role in your spot in your family and among your friends and is seemingly a better version of you. And you can't convince anyone that that person isn't really you. And so it, it has a lot of kind of existential terror elements brought back in and to the fore. Um, but yeah, they're continuing to produce uh, new versions for the world of darkness um, off of that. And uh, still with the same emphasis that uh, very much in the early nineties, when it came out um, and D and D modules, a lot were focusing on kind of combat oriented things and the bigger monsters to fight the emphasis on of the world of darkness products were a lot more on narrative and storytelling play. In fact, it was called the storytelling system um, kind of to, to, to phase that, which made some of the mechanics a little jankier and not as great in some ways. Uh, casting spells in mage was great on paper, but very difficult to actually figure out how to game. Cause the idea was unlike the kind of fancy and magic system that D and D has, where here's a set thing you have. And once per day, you can do X. This was more a, well, you can think of a creative way that you might use power over time, which sounds great, but very kind of clunky to actually implement at the table. Um, if you've got particularly power gamers at play. So, right. And as I recall from our gaming in high school, we never really successfully got a vampire or a mage or a, a werewolf game, you know, tabletop game off the ground. We did have that brief success with the, the LARP, but really my love of the world of darkness system was not to play the game. It was actually just to read the the manuals and read the, the the setting books, right? I loved the World of Darkness setting book for Chicago, where you know we were living in the suburbs of uh, during this time, and and so on. It was a magnificently conceived speculative fiction universe, this this urban fantasy universe that I just loved to read and didn't even feel that I needed to play. So it was you know the storyteller system, but I almost really felt like the books themselves were telling a story, even just as they were doing all of this magnificent world building. And it was a big part of my adolescence. And I, I miss reading these books. Yeah. And they were always great to read. And it, it did a wonderful job of kind of bolting magical realism onto the world we're in. And I think an advantage that any system has, or even um, any piece of fiction has, if it's set in a contemporary setting that you're familiar with. So for anything that we're encountering set in, you know, 2019, 2020 America, um, you don't have to oftentimes do quite as much work to establish, you know, that there are cars and that cars run on gasoline and some run on diesel, but most don't. Um, but you have to do all of that extra legwork when it comes to a lot of other settings or even different time periods to make sure folks kind of are able to perceive things. And so the world of darkness was able then to leverage the space that they saved in describing what automobiles were um, and what, um, you know, a pistol, uh, was, uh, and instead could put more flavor into describing what the sex and different clans and bloodlines of vampires were. And then to spiral that back through time, um, for what vampires were like hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago with the idea that some of those vampires, because they're vampires are still alive and either walking the world or asleep and waiting for something to happen. Right. And, and as you suggested earlier, but this was also a setting that had a, a medieval version, right? There was a, a dark 
Age version of the world of darkness, though, you know, medieval historian Glenn has to say that term, which no one should ever use as misapplied here. It's not the early Middle Ages. It's uh, the the 12th century. And then I think really it gets gets robustly developed as the the 13th century. But that's a super cool idea. They also then had a a bit of a a 19th century uh, foray as well. And so, yeah, because it's the real world, it has this uh, this depth, not just in space, but this depth in, in, in time, right? So it's a, a kind of really, I mean, just tremendously sprawling. That's the word I keep using, uh, sprawling fantasy world, dark fantasy, urban fantasy world that uh, that really just captured my imagination. That's one that I would you know highly recommend to people who haven't checked it out before. So we still got a few games on our, on our list that we want to talk about, and we are really trying to, to cover kind of the, the breadth of weird fiction as a large umbrella category, as a kind of storytelling mode. And so we're going to try to look at some some different genres now. And in fact, we've got uh, two games coming up right now that uh, I guess I would characterize as being more in the, the science fiction form of weird fiction here. And, and Brent, you're going to get us started with the, the first of these, and then Brandon's going to talk about uh, about one that I really love. So SLA Industries, pronounced Slay Industries, uh, came out in 1993 from Nightfall Games. Um, and I actually stumbled on a used copy of it in the same bookstore, might have been the same trip, when I bought uh, an older version of the third edition of Call of Cthulhu. Um, and it was a great... Uh, look at and creation of a far-flung future dystopian civilization that had a lot of cyberpunk elements. Um, it also had a lot of horror uh, mixed in um, and a lot of cultural commentary. So every home in the universe um, that is almost all just kind of urban decay uh, manifest, um, but everyone has a television. You can adjust the volume, but you can't ever turn it off. And everyone works in some capacity for a giant uh, corporation that has many subsidiaries and owns other corporations. Uh, And the head of the corporation is some kind of, you know, demonic or vampiric kind of entity um, who is up to no good. Um, And you play characters who are trying to be television stars and you're trying to be television stars by going out and doing violence um, against, um, you know, roving bands of cannibals who are trying to take advantage of things or you're investigating serial killers. Um, and it's in the future. So there's lots of kind of futuristic guns and things, but to try to curb the use of gunplay too much, um, to make it more exciting for the television viewers. Cause also, um, the whole time you're being followed by camera crews and other things and trying to sell, um, licensing rights to showcase part of your armor, like you're a NASCAR car. Um, but there's a tax on the number of bullets that you use. Um, so the idea is that everyone should have big guns, but you should almost never use them. Um, on top of that, though, uh, there is this um, kind of underlying existential metaphysical kind of flow to the whole universe um, that the ebb uh, it's called. Um, and and there's a race that can kind of channel part of that into manifest um, kind of sort of magical abilities. Um, but at a certain point, as they age, they uh, get an increasing amount of white noise that could drive them insane of hearing this this source of this this, this underlying power. Um, and if they decide to give in and f- connect to it fully, they actually become these twisted, um, almost H.R. Geiger inspired nightmarish like creatures of seemingly pure evil that also were working for the giant evil corporation. So there's a lot of things going on. Um, and it was kind of a nice mixture of cyberpunk and splatterpunk and some kind of, uh, 
gothic imagery, but set in a far-flung science fiction future. And uh, um, the system, I remember being kind of clanky, though a couple times I tried to run it, but uh, it was another book that I just love to occasionally uh, pop open and read um, and, and think about what it would like be like to have a character in this setting. Um, and it doesn't have sanity rules the way that call of Cthulhu does. Uh, but it does have the idea that your characters have a security clearance level. And as they learn more, they might advance their security clearance, but in the corporation, but the more they learn, probably more at risk they are for uh, tripping on something they shouldn't because they're working for an evil corporation. And um, the game kind of assumes that not all members of the party will necessarily be as evil and self-serving as um, uh, one would really need to be to, to enjoy that setting the most. But and I really love Slay Industries. There, in fact, there are, there are two specific things that I really love about Slay Industries. One, as a, a game that is riffing on the the history of weird fiction, the tradition of weird fiction, and and that's that that Slay Industries as a game does something that is is missing, I think, from both Call of Cthulhu and Trail of Cthulhu, and really also the other games that we've talked about. And that's the fact that Lovecraft and Howard and Clark Ashton Smith. And, and many others are writing in the inner war years, that they're writing in this world that is shaped by the horror of the, the First World War, uh, shaped by uh, a world that's been upended and maybe even you know, overturned, we might say, really shocked by the slaughter of tens of millions of people with machines that were inconceivable just a century before, really inconceivable even just two generations before, and the brutality and the horror of technology and the human failing that is war is all over the the stories all over the the worlds that lovecraft and howard and smith and others in weird tales build and it's kind of missing from some of these other games that we've talked about but slay industries brings that back uh, that violence is such a big part of it and that there's a uh, sort of militaristic expansion happening uh, in this future as well and i think that's something that is is really phenomenal that the game captures uh, extraordinarily well and is a big a big deal historically in the the tradition of the literature. But the other thing, of course, that's great about it is that Slay Industries is an artifact of its own time, right? As all of these stories are, that it has its own concerns with what's going on in the 1990s. And really, these are the cyberpunk concerns about the centralization of economic power into in the hands of a handful of corporations that exist or are able to exist outside of the bounds of any kind of government oversight, that they actually are replacing the the government, that they're able to to act with real impunity. And that was something that people were very afraid of here in the 80s and the, the 90s, and actually, I think, still today. In fact, in some ways, those nightmares have come have come true. And Slay Industries captures that uh, beautifully as well, I think better than, than, than any other game that I've seen. Yeah, Glenn, that notion of the horror of the absolute devastation that machines can cause is, is all over the other game that we wanted to talk about here, which is Numenera. And Numenera is a Monty Cook game, uh, came out in 2013 or so, and it takes place a billion years in the future in what's called like the Ninth World or the Ninth Age. And Monty Cook explicitly cites Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun as an influence on this game setting. And Newman, and I want to take a moment and just kind of break down the 
title of the game itself um, because I think it's kind of interesting and speaks to a lot of what's going on in the game. So Newman is a word that could mean spirit or divinity and era, of course, means age. So maybe, you know, Monty Cook is playing here a little bit with with Hegel's philosophy of history, but the spirit of this age here, the the zeitgeist of the, the Newman era is not really a friendly utopia. And, and really the concept of the Newman era in the game refers to the relics and the artifacts and ciphers of the past. And cipher here is a technical term in the game, which uh, a cipher is a useful trinket that can be found anywhere in the world and, and found in plenty, really. And it's meant to be used by the player characters and discarded. But really, uh, you in this world, a billion years of the future, people kind of live in a medieval present or a, a sort of medieval setting, I guess would be the better way to say it. Uh, and as Monty Cook says, it's a medieval setting without any historicity, because they've forgotten all the meaning of these technological discoveries and these series of alien invasions that have happened. And all of the satellites in the sky and what they're for and the dirt is actually just made of like silicon and uh metal because they're they're living literally on top of these the wreckage of many many technological ages and the horrors that have come with them and so a lot of the stock adventures in this game hinge on the player characters making an additional discovery uh, that about something wrong in the world that seems like it can be solved through some sort of magic or, or tinkering or cipher use. But then it turns out often that there's just uh, a cult worshiping an evil machine or some robot that's gone off the reservation uh, or somebody's using these things to nefarious ends. And I think it's this sort of thing, the, the worship of machines, the the robots who have their own powers that people can't control, it's a subtle reference to the fact that these machines in the game are met by the people in this world with a sense of awe uh, that is often reserved for spirits and divinity. And so that that's kind of where the name comes from, the name of the game, Numenera. But in the game, you're able to play as basically three classes a warrior uh techno mage or like you know the the wizard type character and a rogue type and these all have special character names class names in the game setting and each of these characters can choose professions that allow them to navigate the world a little easier so there's a lot of versatility even though you can only play three character class types in how you play these characters and uh Basically, you you group up, and there is a game master, that and the team goes to some town where you know some wizard is poisoning the water or something like that, and then you go in a cave and fight a machine or something along those lines. I think Glenn, you and I ran about three of these stock uh, adventures and learned the system well enough to kind of vary to to uh, want to vary from the kind of plot advancement that the that the standard stock adventures gave us but it's a really rich world and the real innovation of this world is the use of ciphers the picking up and throwing away of loot that helps you and aids you in your adventure you can only carry a certain number at a time so they really kind of encourage you to use these ciphers and they carry over your over from adventure to adventure if you don't use them all in your adventure uh, that you're running so yeah, Numenera is just kind of a crazy game about the horrors uh, of 
a real technological age that people have not been able to ever overcome, not even a billion years in the future. And uh, it's a fun game. But I should also note, since we're talking about weird fiction and not science fiction, that a lot of these settings are really horror settings. A lot of the creatures are terrifying. You know, you're, you're, you're fighting these, you know, you're, you're fighting things like evil spiders and you're in caves and you're in awful places uh, in order to get to where these machines are buried. And so it really has its roots in weird fiction, even though it's kind of got this science fiction gloss all over it. Right. I mean, as you said, this is in the tradition of Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. And Monty Cook even did uh, some kind of workshop with Gene Wolfe. I'm not really sure about the particulars of when and where he had done that. But in the introduction to the the game's core book, he he talks about what a massive influence uh, Gene Wolfe's work was, but also studying with Gene Wolfe for the the way that he wanted to build this world that is really you know a science fantasy world, right? And it's not just machines. That's not the only type of technology that's going on here. I mean, there's an awful lot of biotech as well, which is a massive part of the the book of the new sun. Gene Wolf, of course, was actually a plant engineer. So thinking about biotech and biological engineering is a massive part of that world and, and, and much of Wolf's work as well. And so I think one of the adventures that we ran together, Brandon, involved us fighting something that was like goblins, right? That were just mutations of, of some sort, some other kind of, of uh, genetically distinct descendant of humans that had been some kind of mutation. We had to fight them, but then the real resolution of the conflict was that we actually needed to uh, fix the 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 link from a uh, a ground station to an ancient weather satellite, right? So it's, it has right. elements of fantasy and elements of science, and all of it in this really horrific landscape where no one understands the way that the world works, where you, you can go 10 miles down the road and the world actually has different physical properties from the village that you grew up in because even just their their dirt right as you said is not actual dirt it's pieces of machines and maybe it's pieces of a different machine than your dirt is and it can have different properties it's it's a really wonderful setting and i'll say that i played a little bit or really maybe i should say looked at a little bit of the the gurps system for book of the new sun and i think numenera is a better book of the new sun role-playing game than the the gurps game that actually explicitly takes place in the book of the new sun setting is I think that's probably the case, and, and you're absolutely right to point out that this uh, that this game does feature what's called abhumans, which are the mutants or the genetically advanced ones, and a lot of these people, a lot of these sorts of things you'd find in uh, a Gene Wolfe novel about genetic tinkering in the in the human code, uh, and he's really Gene Wolfe is really caught up with this idea in many many of his stories and novels as well. And what always strikes me, in contrast to Slay Industries in the World of Darkness, which we were talking about before, where it's dark and it's raining all the time in both those locations, um, and it may be pre-apocalypse, but it's not quite sure whether it is or not, Numenera always strikes me as it's post-apocalypse, but it's so far past the apocalypse that now no one recalls it. My sense is that the horror elements in Numenera um, very much come from you as the player realizing what your character is stumbling on of what must have happened millennia ago versus 
necessarily the, you know, bad guy of the week that maybe you're dealing with and trying to deal with a specific problem at hand that's affecting you or your village or um, others that you're encountering. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's a big part of the plot momentum of a Numenera game or running a, a scenario in Numenera is kind of this uncovering, this spine-tingling moment of recognizing the the horror of the past is really something we might find in our present or is not far in our own future. And that's really a big part of the, the fun of the game. And I think in... In thinking about designing a game to run for Numenera instead of using some of their stock adventures, that would be a core part of what you build into it is, you know, like genetic testing, hybrids of some kind, and extrapolating that out billions of years, not just one apocalypse from now, but seven apocalypses from now what that would look like, how humanity would shift uh, in some ways. And in some ways, you know, Terry Brooks takes up some of these ideas in his Shannara stories as well, uh, which is another series that's, you know, spoiler alert for people who haven't read it, set, spent, <laughs> um, that takes place, you know, way, way, way in the future after apocaly- after several apocalypses have happened. And, you know, there's stuff like satellites hanging out and things like that. Old sc- skyscrapers make up, you know, dungeons. So, it, and the different races are in Terry Brooks' Shannara series are, you know, explicitly the result of some of this genetic shift in in humanity so you know this isn't the first time uh something like this has been done but this setting really captures a lot of the fun of thinking along those lines and extrapolating out as a storyteller when you're running an adventure so brent i know we have one more game we wanted to talk about today which is veins of the earth why don't you tell us a little bit about that one yeah, so as we were thinking about these settings, and um, as we've talked about them, a lot of them lean on science fiction a little bit, but there's a lot of horror in there. And um, something that I've become um, quite taken with recently is uh, Veins of the Earth. And Veins of the Earth is uh, technically a supplement. You could use it for any number of things. It's for a game, though, called Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Lamentations of the Flame Princess is part of what is being collectively referred to as the old school renaissance or OSR. And a lot of these are games where it's a stripped down kind of version of what Dungeons and Dragons was when it first came out. Um, but then with a couple minor tweaks, but the idea is to um, focus on um, often very deadly encounters, um, but also just not letting too many rule minutiae get in the way of getting to uh, the action of combat as well as the stories you're trying to tell. But um, Veins of the Earth um, by Patrick Stewart, uh, not John Luke Picard, Patrick Stewart, um, with art by Scrab Princess, um, really started almost as a dare in which um, uh, Patrick Stewart was lamenting the fact that in traditional kind of modern tellings of Dungeons and Dragons, um, we have underworld settings. The Underdark is one example um, where it ends up just being, you know, giant caves where civilizations that look a lot like civilizations on the top of the world would be if they were. Um, happen to be in giant caves under the world. Um, and the veins of the earth takes a different approach. So the idea is that now that we know a lot more than we did 30 years ago when D and D was 
first being created and some of these settings were being thought about. We know a lot more about what caves are like. We know more about the strange things that can be occurring underground. Um, and so it kind of takes the idea of your underground and it's terrifying and can be disoriented and it can be lots of narrow spaces and it, you really shouldn't be mapping in a traditional way. And it kind of plays that out um, as a series of mechanics that you could kind of bolt onto any kind of setting if where you've got characters who are in caves and transiting a lot underground. He also kind of has a romantic view of the role that kind of and, and what stone is in relationship to people. Um, so I want to read a quote here. Stone does not live. We can counter history in its strata, but not for long. Reading time in the hand in the bands of colored rock that line a cliff. Human action is shallow, a mere skim across the top. We can carve and cut the stone and run out our hands across its lines, but there is no lasting victory in this. In a war between stone and man, stone wins. Thinking about geology and the engine of earth that created it is like gaining access to deep time. Indifferent eons await us on the other side. Caves are a route through stone and therefore literally a route through time. A world inside the stone, inside the earth, is a world projected back into deep time. So that's kind of the foundation of where he started. So as I said, there's mechanics in terms of how you would set up the idea of not traditional kind of map laying out. But then there's also just weird inhabitants of, of what it would like to actually have, not just like, oh, well, there's elves. And so they'll either have darker or lighter skin, but actually like, no, there's you know crazy creatures and kind of horrific concepts. Um, of what these creatures might be and the, the art here, which, um, is not necessarily everyone's liking, but, um, I like quite a bit scrap princess. Um, it, it's kind of, it's very emotive of, I think what you're trying to capture where it's a lot of indistinct shapes and it's a lot of kind of almost pencil scratchy kind of things. And it's creatures that lie in wait and creatures that, um, just have strange scientific related phenomena around them, like the tachyon troll that um, ends up having echoes of time that come out around it um, that affect things. And it, it, it can't remember where it is relative to past and, and future and present. Um, but everything is, can be very disoriented. Um, and for your characters, then the, the, one of the most primary important things for them to keep track of is light. Um, it, the idea that you know, we maybe can find our way back to where we came from, but we need to make sure we have light to keep things at bay and also so we ourselves can see. And so light, which is a mechanic that in a lot of games at this point is just like, okay, well, you've got X amount of torches and you're fine. And at this point in Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition, half the races have dark vision. So it can be completely dark and you, you can see, okay, for 30 feet, it's just like, it's, you know, it's, it's all grayscale. You don't see color, but you can see, and it's fine. It's like, no, you can't see very far at all. Light is very important. The few magic items that are introduced in here are things about having like light sources that just allow you to see just enough around the corner. Um, and you have to make sure the group doesn't separate too much as there's monsters that specifically look for someone to fall a little behind and then either, you know, physically grab them or just put doubts in their heads. And, um, it can find you when you're at it to your lowest and convince you to go find, you know, a, some, surf uh some kind of cliff within a cave and throw yourself off of it because of the despair of the setting 
that's fantastic. I mean, it reminds me of the film The uh, Descent, which is kind of this great, you know, British horror movie about uh, four women who go into a cave and and they can't see anything. There's like a cave in, and then they start getting hunted by these dark creatures, you know, that might have had human origins in the past, but also a big threat to them is their own sense of trust in one another begins to deteriorate. And it sounds like this game is trying to sort of capture that feeling of being lost in a cave with a small group with almost no way out. And you're being hunted by these sorts of dark creatures. Yeah, that that's, that's right on. Um, and so uh, again, it sets it up that in theory, you could create creatures that were born in the caves, but, um, I very soon would like to actually just bolt part of it onto a more traditional Dungeons and Dragons setting where it's like, oh yeah, you decide to explore some caves. Okay. Completely new rule set comes out <laughs> Yeah, and let's deal with how like in, insanity inspiring, um, both moving through caves can be. Um, as well as the kinds of creatures which are maybe to you completely illogical because your understanding of of the way things operate are based entirely on the fact that you've lived above ground, um, as have your characters. Yeah, it's a really, really cool idea for a gaming system on its own, or as you're saying, just to tack on to what already is out there, like a D&D setting. I think it's worthwhile also to talk about the way that tabletop role-playing games have influenced other types of storytelling that we consume, um, particularly novels, the way they've influenced the whole fantasy publishing category and, and other publishing categories as well. Glenn, I, I know you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, right. I just want to talk about role-playing game novels on, on their own, right? And these are novels that are explicitly based on or, or set in role-playing game settings. They're always published by the same publisher that does the the tabletop role playing game itself or you know it's licensed out to another publisher and it's often the same creators people who are working on the novels also work on the the manuals or writing the adventures and vice versa and because of this right it's not just that these are novels that are occurring in these RPG settings they're also very much based on RPG storytelling. They are meant to make you, the reader, feel like you're just reading the novelization of your most recent campaign, right? So the idea is that a party of characters with unique but codependent skill sets are going to team up and go fight a, a big bad in some way. And of course, there can be all sorts of variations on that of you know subverting expectations of tropes and and so on. And I got into RPGs through reading RPG novels, right? It was not the other way around. I didn't go to these novels because I wanted to relive my game experience or because I couldn't find people to game with. I got into gaming because I had just randomly picked up Dragonlance books in our uh, childhood bookstore outside of Chicago. And and that was really how I got into role-playing games. It's actually really how Brent and I became very good friends in, in junior high as well. And in particular, right, these are the Dragonlance books. And I actually just reread Dragons of Autumn Twilight for a, a new show that we'll have out in the, the summer of 2020. 
And I was actually really blown away by the really strong Lovecraftian elements in what is uh, what have always felt to me to be simply uh, a riff on the the Lord of the Rings, basically. And especially there's this wholesale lifting of the Louisiana swamp scene straight out of Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu. It's just that it's applied to dragons and uh, other sort of uh, scary humanoid dragon uh, bad guys in there. So again, just strong influences of of, of weird fiction, even in the the, the fan fantasy novels here from uh, a Dungeons and Dragons setting. But all of the big RPGs have a series of novels as a part of their their, their brand. And I spent a lot of time in a, in a bookstore. That's actually where I hold my office hours. And about 20% of the speculative fiction section is devoted to role-playing game novels. And most of it's actually Warhammer, which we, we left off our list today, but someday we'll talk about Warhammer. Uh, and there's also a lot of R.A. Salvatore material and, and some bit still of actually some Dragonlance material as well. So uh, this is clearly a big part of speculative fiction, these these novels that have grown completely out of, of gaming. It certainly was a big part of my initiation into the world of speculative fiction. And I think it's fair to say that this type of storytelling, this this storytelling about a party of adventurers crawling through dungeons, getting into boss fights, this is really now a massive part of our contemporary storytelling. Yeah, it's a huge part of our contemporary storytelling. And I have to think a lot of the writers who have crafted the game-changing style of storytelling that took place over the course of the 90s, sort of starting with genre TV like The X-Files, maybe a little bit with Star Trek The Next Generation, is really rooted in this sort of RPG game-running style of thinking, which is finding the tension between uh, character the impact the last campaign had on your characters, what they're going to do next, and what the next adventure they're going to go on is. And uh, this is goes back to what Ken and Robin, uh, who, we, who we mentioned earlier in the show, talk about so much, which is the tension between the iconic heroes and the dramatic heroes. And telling long-form stories, like on TV, uh, you have two options, which is to reset the universe every week, which is something that uh, Star Trek did very often, uh, especially The Next Generation, unless there was a two-parter or something like that. But even that show has Picard going from a sort of um, distant leader to recognizing the importance of the recognizing his own role in influencing people around him and letting other people impact and influence him as well. But by the time you get to Joss Whedon in the late 90s with like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spinoff Angel, you are deep in weird fiction territory and particularly our role-playing game territory. You have a crew of people, each with unique skills, you have an iconic hero who kind of sets the mission for everybody. And then you have dramatic characters who change and all impact one another. And you have an adventure of the week, but you're trying to get the whole team to this, you know, to the end of the campaign, which is really a season. And so I think that people who grew up playing these games in the 70s and 80s and turned their eye towards television writing really changed the whole scope of television uh, for the better. This this style of storytelling where you have miniature obstacles on the way to bigger obstacles and what happens 
when the characters accomplish or fail to accomplish the tasks uh, set before them shapes how the rest of the story is told. They don't just get off easy uh, because they're the main character. And and this really culminates in George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones type of storytelling, which is rooted in sword and sorcery and weird fiction rather than the Tolkien-esque type of world. And a lot of popular fantasy publishing today the big series like Wheel of Time and uh, Game of Thrones, and in particular, are those are really rooted in maybe more Howard's sense of uh, fantasy, the sword and sorcery. Uh, but Brandon Sanderson, who is another major writer right now, his storytelling is rooted really in game rules. Uh, his magic systems could be written out like a manual for game playing and his characters really follow along these rails of storytelling um, that are sort of rooted in the role playing game influence. So you, you can see how this is sort of bled out into the broader, really mass market popular publishing and popular media of uh, our current media landscape. Right. And, and things like what Brandon Sanderson and, and many others do in, in literature has been dubbed progression fantasy, right? The the whole idea is that you're getting characters who are starting at a low level and we're going to follow them through time as they level up. And sometimes we're going to even get the training montages. We'll see what it is that they're doing to actually level up. Uh, and then by the conclusion of the story, they're going to be, you know, level 100 characters and taking on the biggest of big bads. And that is, as you say, it's straight out of gaming, and it even has its own subgenre within the fantasy storytelling now. And we'd be remiss if we didn't, in this section of the show as well, talk about something that has come up uh, already that we've mentioned a few times, which is the TV show Stranger Things, right? Which is uh, very much uh, a type of, of uh, which is very much structured like a role-playing campaign. But more importantly, it is actually about a bunch of kids who are playing D&D in the 80s, right? So D&D, gaming, is a part of the story of Stranger Things in this metafictional sense, right? Which is, I think, maybe one of the most brilliant things uh, in this show that is really just kind of brilliant all through. Well, I think, you know, that, that really brings it back around to, to things we've already been talking about. So it's a great note with which to end the episode. If you haven't seen Stranger Things, you should watch it. It's a, it's a really fun, weird fiction show that is also rooted in, in D&D lore. Uh, so that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Please, while you are on claytemplemedia.com, check out the Clay Temple forums and uh, let us know what some of your favorite weird fiction games are. We really barely scratched the, the surface of this topic here, uh, even though we've been at it for well over an hour. And so we'd love to hear what some of your favorite games are. I think this could be a really fun, really robust conversation. Yeah, I'd certainly love to learn more about it. I, I really Every time I sit down to play uh, old school tabletop RPG. I just love it and I don't have enough time to do it. So let me live vicariously through your comments about games you really like. And if you have something that you'd like for us to talk about at Clay Temple Media, please reach out to us and let us know if you'd like to commission an episode to talk about one of your favorite topics. We really, really love doing this. Well, and then uh, next time, uh, we'll be back with whatever has won a Patreon vote. So I'll have to re-record this for when it's going to go out actually on the, uh, the the main feed and not just uh, on Patreon for our supporters. But hey, Patreon supporters, thanks so much for being here. So until then, we greet you and say farewell. 